Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired as a detective sergeant out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, and he was a, a second-grade detective from Intel in the 6-0 squad, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing, Phil? Pretty good, Bill. Thank you for having me back. Hey, it's this is a this isn't a real crime episode. I, if you guys are thinking we're doing this someone Wells tonight, a case tonight, we're not. We're doing a case about um, a case, a show about opioid addiction, and we have two guests. That one of them is an active member of the service. He still works in the the six zero precinct, right, Mike? Yeah, Michael Balioni, and he has a story to tell about opioid addiction. And with us at the bottom right is retired NYPD captain and former head of security for JetBlue, Loretta Kennedy. Good to see you, Loretta. Hey, Billy. How you doing? Pretty I good. Was, I was a security director there. I, I wasn't the VP, but still, uh, very uh, busy uh, job there. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to mess up your title. That's you know? okay. I, like That's Phil, Phil is a captain in the Bananos, but I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now, Billy. Quiet down. Quiet down. So, Mike, tell us. Yeah. You, you, right now, I know one of the other things about you. I just want to mention it is you're big into the the polar bear club, and they, there yeah. you are. I mean, I you know I'm a little we I'm a little weasel when it comes to cold water. It's 90 right. degrees that I'm dipping my toe in the water. You know, here you are, right? In, in freezing cold winter. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Here's here's where you can tell that water is really really cold. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, we have guys, too, that they they do that Wim Hofing. My son does that. Yeah. You know yeah. what Wim Hofing is, right? I what, sure do. Yeah. What was the air temperature on the day of those pitches? You know what, fan, Mike? I don't, but most of the time, the water, especially in, like, February and March, the water is warmer than the air. Yes. It actually ties into my whole story. Like, I can't talk about being a polar bear and enjoying cold water swimming without talking about uh, the process in which I got there. It, it's all related. Well, hey, we're all ears. We're here to hear your story. Go ahead, tell your right. story. <laughs> okay. So, innocently enough, and I'm sure you, you've heard this before, it happened with a motorcycle accident in 2011. Uh, you know, we were in the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. We get rear-ended, and we go to Bellevue. Nothing crazy. And um, at that time, there wasn't really major restrictions on the painkillers, the opioids. Mike, when you say we, who is we? Myself and my wife. Yeah, you didn't say that. Oh, uh, sorry. We won't let you get away with anything on this channel. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Mike, were you in a car or on a motorcycle? You said a motorcycle accident. You, you were on a bike? Yeah, we were on a, we were on a bike. I was a, I'm a pretty big guy. It was a 1200 Sportster, but we still got rear-ended. And uh, anyway... So we go to Bellevue, they give us, you know, scripts, Motrin and everything like that and uh, painkillers. And uh, what ended up happening was my wife developed a dependency on them. And this, this dependency was a secret for extreme, like basically six years. And during that time, we had gotten married. We got married twice. We got once once in 2011 at City Hall and once again in 2013 with our families out in Westbury at um, 
uh, near Jericho Turnpike. I forget the uh, Crest Hollow. Okay. And we traveled the world. And in late of 2014, she's pregnant and she gives birth in 2015 to our daughter in February. Again, at this time, she's working at a white shoe law firm. I'm doing my overtime, doing everything I can. You know, why would I think there would be a drug habit? Continues on after the birth. Now, just to let you know, she was able to go cold turkey for her pregnancy, which was very difficult. But during her birth, during uh, the birthing process of our daughter, it was very difficult. So they gave her painkillers during the during the childbirth. And again, in secret, until summer of 2016. So about like 14 months later, um, I noticed some things that are huge red flags, like staying out late, uh, disappearing money. I would find a pill in the house or something. And, you know, at that time, she, she kind of confessed to me that she deserved, that I deserved better, that she was an addict. And I didn't like understand it or take it for what it was. It's, I was completely green to the idea that my wife could be addicted to anything. Anyway, so she ended up meeting someone when she was buying her, uh, her drugs. And that person uh, basically became her boyfriend, right? So what would any cop do whose wife is, you know, addicted with another person? You, you know, you kind of like, you fight, you fight, you fight, and then you, you lay down the law. That's what we know. So I gave her a limited order protection and I served her with divorce papers. Um, and it's so hard to like see someone you love deteriorate and basically throwing their life away, you know, because she had this great job that she lost and she wasn't the person that I saw. And all, all I remember is being disgusted at her, right? I remember screaming at her one time, oh, you're such a junkie and you're a disgrace to my name, yada, yada, yada. Mike, let me ask you something. What was her drug of choice after the opioids? It always was opioids. It was always opioids. Okay. Just the, it intensified. So it used to be Vicodin after Bellevue. And then it became Percocet after the birth. And then after the Percocet, it became the Roxy set. You know, the, uh, the people that get addicted to these pills, what happens over time one pill's not enough, then they're into two right. and then three. And, and I, I knew I had a friend, uh, he was up to 11 pills a day of oxycodone. Yeah. This was about 10 years ago. Yeah. And uh, nobody knew. It was, it was amazing. I, I mean, he wasn't a close friend. It was actually my brother-in-law's friend. But nobody knew. And he was eating 11 pills a day. And what snapped him out of it was uh, he had extensive hearing loss. 
he started to go deaf from the pills. That's one of the side effects, I guess, 11 pills a day. And he wound up getting clean. He got his life together and uh, he, he, he wears a hearing aid and he's a young, a young guy, he's probably approaching 40 now. He's got a couple of kids. He got his life together. But uh, mm. I, I see where you were going, Mike, with the increasing of the pills and yeah. the, the, the kind of pills usually uh, graduate to the stronger ones, you know? Right. And I mean, I don't I don't like to tell her story again. This is my story, how I interpret it and how I grew as a person. Anyway, so with that being said, uh, in May of 2017, um, she gets served with divorce papers. Uh, I go to my brother's house in New Jersey. Uh, I basically, the way she worded it was I goaded her into uh, texting me to the point of aggravated harassment. So then the next day I go to the 6A precinct and I get her arrested on those limited order protection, take the kid away. Now that's it. I have the kid, I've got my car and I'm safe. My job is safe. And I kind of just was like, enough already. You know, I, I had been going to these meetings on Narcotics Anonymous, you know, for individuals who love someone who is using. And I, you know, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. You, you, you reach a breaking point, how much you love someone. I can't believe how hard it is for me to talk about this. Wasn't expecting that. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I take the kid away and she can't go to the house. And basically, I lose contact with her for a few months. Well, maybe not a few months, like a month, maybe six weeks. Turns out that her phone got broken when she got arrested. And the individual that she was seeing became very violent. There was no more money because I took the money out of the bank account. She kind of spiraled down. And I was living with my uncle. And I was doing everything I had to do. I have a big mouth, right? So I would talk about this and everyone knew what was going on, that my wife was addicted, yada, yada, yada. And so many people I'd come across would be like, oh yeah, I know this person too. And I know this person too. And this, you know, so on and so forth. And uh, in Staten Island, they have these little yellow lawn signs, the SI Hope, and they're everywhere. And basically you don't know why a person has that. Did someone overdose or did, you know, do they care about someone who's, fighting substance abuse and uh, she gets she gets an order of protection against the person that she's with. She gets herself back on her feet. She takes out money from her 401. She gets a new job. And so I start seeing the person who I married occasionally at these like supervised visits. And uh, we start going to therapy and I can't quite bring it to myself to tell the people that I'm living with that, by the way, the person that I took out an order of protection with and filed for a divorce is now doing better. You know, I mean, how do you know if someone's sobriety is legitimate? Do you know if it's going to last? I mean, everyone knows that relapse is part of recovery, but you don't know. You know, so anyway, Mike, can I, can I stop you for one second? Yeah. I just want all listeners to know basically how brave this is of Mike to come out and tell this story. And the other thing, his story is much more difficult because he's a cop and the job, the job can be very supportive of the, or they can be your worst enemy too. Right. So if you don't do everything right in this kind of situation, you can wind up in handcuffs. Right. And you know, that's you, you probably did everything right because 
you didn't wind up in handcuffs. And right. Loretta, you're a captain. You were a captain. You know what I'm telling this is the damn truth, right? And uh, this is a very, very touchy situation. Absolutely. If you don't handle it right, you know, with the job, you know, you're going to be uh, you're going to be rubber gunned. You know, you're going to be what they used to call it, the bow and arrow squad. You'd be working somewhere, right? And, uh, you know, so you have to handle this very gingerly. Right. So uh, back in February of 2017, I reached out to what was early intervention. And I spoke to a sergeant over there. I explained to them what was going on. She met me. And, you know, she told me I was enabling her. So she came to the house where we were living in Bay Ridge. And uh, you know, my wife flipped out. She goes, I don't want the police involved. And she wanted to know where our daughter was at the time. So we actually, because she was so hysterical, we EDP'd her. We sent her to the hospital. Oh, my God. Uh, it's bringing back so, such, so many a flood of memories. Anyway, so that very night, after all this, I go to my first Naranar meeting. And, you know, I had to admit to myself that I was married to an addict. That I was, I was, this was why my life was where it was. Because you try to control someone, the disease is gonna win. There's no doubt about it. You can't control, you can't control a chemical dependency based on whatever. Anyway, so I had filed the DIR. That was the very first time I went to uh, the 122 precinct. I met with, you know, Staten Island inspections and I explained to them what was going on. That was like the first of three or four DIRs. And, you know, I mean... Uh, I li- domestic incident report for our listeners that yeah, don't, yeah, know, right. don't know the cop lingo. <laughs> right, right. And because, like, I'm a cop, I can't just talk to another cop. I have to talk to a captain. They have to make sure that what you're doing is, you know, right. And so, yeah, there's a couple more incidences where I have to file the DIRs. Every time I serve her with a divorce paper or when I took the kid away, so on and so forth. Mike, could I just interject something real quick? The domestic yeah. incident report is making a police report, so to speak, with the police department. And I think it really kind of covers you as a police officer that you're, you're, you're stepping forward and saying there's a domestic incident in my home and you're, you're putting it on paper. And I think that was probably to protect you. I mean, I, I, am I correct in saying it? I'm, I'm retired a while, but right. is, that, is that corrected? Were you like directed to do that, let's say by the union, by the PBA or? Right, right. I'm, I remember telling my uh, trustee, I said, my wife is, you know, an addict. And he's like, well, you probably don't want to live with her anymore. And of course, I, the best title anyone could have is a father right so i couldn't really be a father and not have a job so i had to protect my job it it's like stepping on eggshells there's no good way to deal with this i really if, if i had a good way to deal with opioid addiction i'd be a billionaire because everyone knows someone but i you know mike mike just to stop for one second we have uh, the famous dr stephen washkel in the chat oh, and he, yeah, he says mike continues to be an inspiration with his community work and advocacy <laughs> And that's coming from uh, the famous suicide prevention doctor, Stephen Washkel. We've had yeah. on the show numerous times. Yeah. Dr. Steve is really good. I've known him a long time. I mean, back, uh, back before I took her, her child away and got her arrested and kicked out of the apartment, 
there's a very strong part of me that felt that I was broken. I mean, I, I can't explain the despair it is of of seeing your whole life being destroyed. You know, because you think, all right, no matter what, I've been cheated on. I'm in the hole, thousands of dollars. My wife's a drug addict. Is she? Is, she, is you know, is this what my life is going to be like? And I remember because she was going out, and I was with the the newborn, and I was so tired all the time. There is a part that I wanted to kill myself, and I and I tell you this because I there was so much pain. It wasn't a rational thought, but I was so tired and so drained and just beat up that I remember like un unholstering my gun in the precinct and just being so broken. But obviously, I didn't. Did you tell anyone about those feelings? At the time, no. But everyone knew in the precinct, they knew how broken I was. They knew the story that, oh, Balioni's wife, you know, she's a drug addict and she ran away with some guy. I mean, everyone knew. It, I can't hide my emotions. It, Look, that's that in itself, just that is tough to deal with because, you know, you're thinking that everyone's judging you, even though in retrospect, course. that's the least important thing. But, of you course. know, w w being cops... Always used to being in control, right? You know, and when you're not in control, that really, you know, really slaps you down, you know. Yeah, so now she has the order of protection against this guy, she's got herself on her feet, and we go to a couple therapy sessions. And I couldn't bring the I couldn't tell the people I was living with that, by the way, she's sober, I couldn't do it. Maybe because they're old school and they don't know about this or whatever, but I kind of abused their trust. Like there'd be a couple times when I would sleep over where she was living, not to not to be intimate with her, but so that she could see her daughter. Like again, my, there's another person involved in here who's completely untouched by it. Is our daughter, who's two and a half at the time, whose total behavior is changed when she's around her mother. You know, and they do things. They do mother-daughter things. And I really, I realize at this point in time that she's sober and that she really did a 180. And it's a beautiful thing. But like I said, the people I'm living with, I can't bring them to tell them that, oh, I've seen her recovery. I've seen, I've seen how well she's done. I've seen her go to the programs and so on and so forth. So I get thrown out when she, when they find out that, I dropped the divorce case, you know, and uh, basically that sent a shockwave through my entire family because it was like, you know, I took I took them for granted and I and I used them. And now look at me now I'm back with the drug addict. I I, you know, spent all that money on a divorce and I'm, I'm going to ruin my life, her life and our daughter's life. So I had gotten thrown out of where I was living in November of 2017. <clears throat> and what was going on was I was in crime prevention at the time in the 6-0 precinct, which is basically like community affairs, like you do outreach. And I was invited to join the polar bears for a one-time swim. And when I was in the water, the cold, freezing water, I wasn't dealing with any of this you know you can't deal with these incredible feelings when you're freezing your ass off 
<laughs> I guess that cold water had you so focused on the coldness of it that it could be the only thing in your mind at that moment. That's exactly it, Phil. Mike, Is I got to tell you, I, 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 I'm so moved by your story, and I think you have tremendous strength. And, and, and I tell you, it takes a lot to be doing what you're doing right now. And, and hearing what you went through, I, I don't even know how to, you know, throw an accolade at you. I, I think you're, I think you're, uh, you're a real stand-up guy. God bless you. And uh, Thank you. Thank your, 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 your family, I hope that you're in a good place with them. And that, that daughter, you know, she, she obviously uh, was paramount in your decision-making. And I think that that, uh, that takes a lot. Uh, you want to call it heroic. I think that that's the right word for it. That's heroic. And, uh, I give you, I really tip my hat to you. I give you a lot of, uh, a lot of accolades. God bless you. And God bless Thank you. you. Thank you. So, all right. So, yeah. So now, now I'm back with my wife, you know, and I'm with my daughter and my family's fine. Like my immediate family is fine, but there's, there's like, tr like tr it's, it's the best word I could describe it is trauma in my residual family everyone's upset. They don't know what's going on. They, you know, they don't want my uncle, their brother-in-law, they don't want him to be upset. And it, it's a disaster. I mean, the, one person's opioid addiction had this huge fallout. And so what happens is, is that I kind of become like an activist because I don't know what to do. I, I lost contact with my brother. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm pissing everyone off because of everything. So I, uh, I, I do my polar bear swims and I kind of like adopt the polar bears as like my family because they didn't see my wife's disaster of a drug habit. They just saw me and my family. So I get really close with the polar bears and, uh, <laughs> now like it gives me strength because now I have a family. Oh, where'd you go? What's going on? Hello. You still there, Mike? Yeah. You there? Uh, yeah, I'm here. I don't know why your audio didn't work when I removed everyone. Oh, uh, all right. Anyway. So, uh, uh, anyway, long story short, uh, I've become an activist. I've become very vocal about opioid addiction. And I cannot believe how many people on the job, off the job, have known someone who's overdosed or currently addicted or yada, yada, yada. And I guess it's like a passion of mine to, to not to talk about the shit that I went through, but to just to, to let people know that, that this is everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere and it's constant. And, you know, I know everyone wanted to blame Big Pharma, but, you know, people are still dying. I mean, 93,000 people died last year with the corona pandemic on top of opioid addiction. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, look, it's we all know someone that has yeah. someone in their family. I mean, if you have a big family, chances are someone was addicted to drugs, you know? Right. And right. or alcohol. I mean. Yeah, of course. You know, it, it's it, no one. This is not a strange thing. I don't think to anyone, you know, but it's something that people, you know, no one's going to just talk about it out in the open all the time uh, with people that they don't know usually. But, uh, you know, you're becoming an advocate. That's that's a great thing.
and that's why the addictions hot, uh, fester because no no one talks about addictions like they should. They hide in closets, and then all of a sudden you have all these parents who are losing their kids. I mean, it, and it's tragic because there's nothing more heartbreaking than seeing these parents love someone who's addicted. Who they, you know, look. I mean, this is how I went from basically before I cared about drugs or anything, my mind was don't do drugs. Drugs are bad, period. It's a, it's an open and shut case. Okay. It's like the Nancy Reagan thing. Just say no. Remember that one? That was like, of it was course. so simple. It was so just, simple. Just say no. You know? Right. And now because this is like my passion, I think about, you know, maybe, maybe I'll get a master's in public education after the police department. But also, while I'm a police officer, just doing something like this, telling people, you know, there's things you can do. And I know Loretta had spoken about it, where you don't enable, you give it to God. And I went to those meetings. Lord knows I went to those meetings, because that was the only, those are the only people in the world who understood what it is to love someone who's addicted. But I mean, there's also simple things like, safe consumption sites, right? No one wants these in their neighborhood where people will go and use. But on the same token, people are going to use anyhow. So if you put something where people are using, at least you could save some lives. Or like, what is the best gold standard for opioid use disorder? It's medical-assisted treatment. It's not, I'm going to do a 12-step and believe in a higher power. The best by far is, you know, Suboxone or buprenorphine. And there's also fentanyl strips, you know, test your drugs. You know, the cops nowadays, we use naloxone to revive people. But people should also be testing their drugs so that they know that their drugs are pure and not laced with fentanyl. I can't believe how hard this is. I mean, I really, she's sober almost four and a half years. You know, I mean, you wouldn't even know walking down, but this is just such a deep, deep part of my life. No wonder I'm so drawn to it because, you know, I, I have a daughter, right? Everyone has kids and you tell your kids don't do drugs, but what happens if they do the drugs and instead of it being weed, it's a pill. And what if the pill is counterfeit and all of a sudden now, you know, it's laced with something. So this is why, like, I also think about maybe education systems should go into a more of a harm reduction view, which is, you know, if you're going to use, don't use alone. Use slowly. Test your drugs instead of just saying no. Well, look, it looks like it looks like uh, you know law enforcement has become more uh, like society, more into getting people help with narcotics rather than making it a criminal justice problem and locking people up and putting them in jail. Right. Because it's you know treatment. I think probably works better. I think most of us would agree with that. The problem was with use of like drugs like crack. People would be committing crimes to get more crack because it was a, such a short high. Same thing with with heroin. We were we, uh, Phil and I went through the heroin and the crack, and so did Captain Loretta. The heroin and the crack years, and it was a whole different thing than uh, prescription drugs. Right. It, it was it needed law enforcement uh, intervention. Right. I mean, I don't like I said I don't have the answers. But I know that the, the amount of people who are suffering from opioid use is tenfold from the crack epidemic. I mean, 
I'm sure you know the numbers. Like there's, there was these small towns in West Virginia where people were getting 90 pills a day or a month or rather, something absurd. And it's everywhere. But anyway, like, so it's not good enough for me just to know about the drug war, harm reduction, and so on and so forth. I put on, I put on an event in uh, Coney Island uh, in November of 2019 with the help of uh, Eric Adams and uh, Senator Savino, Councilman Traeger. And, I, and once you have an event within the police department, it's acceptable to invite elected officials. So I invited everyone. Cuomo, Trump, Schumer, uh, and in summer of 2020, Trump responded with a letter. So, I mean, that's pretty cool, right? Like a yeah, police, department, police guy has got a letter from the president. You know. That's excellent. Yeah. You know, you know, Mike, let me just, uh, Loretta Kennedy is sitting there, and uh, I know she's got a great, a, a great, yeah, patiently, a great, great story. And uh she told this story over two years ago uh, on our show when we first started out. And first of all, Loretta, I'd like to um, welcome you to the show. You're a very accomplished individual, retired NYPD captain, had a security for JetBlue, and now the biggest title you'll ever have, Grandma. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So I wanted to, uh, you know, invite you, of course, to tell your story. Did we lose Mike? I did lose him. I'll remove him and bring him back. Okay. Um, sure. Thanks, Billy. And thanks for asking me to come back. Um, yeah, it was two years ago. Uh, I had seen some of your podcasts, and I actually reached out to you, if you remember. And yeah, said, I remember, hey. yeah. I was, I was flattered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of uh, what Mike said, um, you know, I agree with, uh, you know, similar situation. So this is uh, how my story goes. Um my son uh, got injured, um, you know, legitimately injured in a basketball game with his friends. Um, he uh, dislocated his pinky. It was actually sideways. I was working at JetBlue at the time. He sent me a picture of it, and I said, oh, my God, you got to go to the hospital and have that, you know, looked at and sent back in place. So he wound up, um, and I, of course, I know this all this after the fact. They gave him Vicodin, and... Um, that was the beginning of the downfall was the Vicodin. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and say my son, you know, cause he, you know, was in his twenties. He was a college graduate already. Uh, he was working. So I'm not going to say he wasn't out partying with his friends and drinking and all that. You know, of course he was. Um, but it was the Vicodin that I ultimately found out was, was the downfall. And, um, as he got used to the Vicodin, um, he progressed and, you know, he went on to oxycodone, you know, it's, it's like kind of the same story as everybody else yeah. from the oxycodone. He subsequently went to heroin because it's cheaper. And, um, you know, I, I would come home from work, obviously. Um, I would see him, you know, completely strung out and, you know, he lied and lied and lied. And, you know, you just want to, you know, say in my mind, like, you know, this can't be happening. And, um, you know, he would deny it and not, you know, I would want to take him, you know, get him to go to rehab. He wouldn't go. He just said he didn't have a problem. There were times I would come home with a house full of uh, people, none of them who I knew. I would be, you know, motherfuckering them all, throwing them out of my house. 
Um, you know, it was a really bad scene. There were times where he would be passed out on his bed. I didn't know if he was dead or not. I was waiting to see his like shirt move up and down to see if he was breathing. So it got really, really bad. So eventually I get a call from him uh, one day and uh, he was no longer living at my house. I actually sold my house because um, it was such a bad situation. So he called me up and he told me that um, if he didn't get into a rehab, he'd be dead by the next day. So now this begins my journey of dealing, you know, with, oh my God, you know, what do I do? You know, like, where do I even start? So I started calling all these rehabs. So, and, and that's where I very quickly found out it's not as easy as picking up the phone and saying, hey, I got a kid who needs to go to rehab. I need a bed. Well, you know, you get the story. There are no beds available. Uh, we might not have any, you know, for weeks and on and on and on. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, what am I going to do? Finally found him a bed actually two days later out in the Hamptons. They came and picked him up. It was a 30-day rehab. Um, I put it on my credit card. Um, he was no longer on my insurance because he was over the age of 26. And this is one of the things I'm going to talk about, too, some of the things I find out about all that kind of stuff. So he goes into the rehab. I went every other week to visit him, and um, he looked great. I remember the first time I went to see him, I actually saw him. I just started crying because I hadn't seen him look so human in so long. So he comes out after 30 days, and, and he's looking great, and he's like, I'm done with drugs. I'm never doing drugs again. And I was like on cloud nine. I thought, oh my God, this is great. Well, that's where I first learned that um, relapse is part of recovery. And that how was, long was- How long was he in at that time? Let 30 us days. And, 30. and let me tell you, 30 days, you know, for an opioid or a heroin addict, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. It's All a right. joke. So, but anyway, it kept him off the drugs for 30 days. He came out, he was clean for a very short time and the next two years he was in and out of seven different rehabs but one of the things i found out was when he was in that first rehab like i said he was no longer on my insurance um they put him on medicaid after he got out so i i didn't even know anybody on medicaid so one night I'm looking, you know, online on Medicaid, like, you know, what are the benefits? You know, what can you get? You know, because I didn't know much about Medicaid and what they covered as far as all this kind of addiction and whatever. Well, I happened to come along to the page of uh, called reimbursements. And I find out that when you get put on Medicaid, anything that uh, condition you had that Medicaid would have normally covered that happened in the preceding 90 days, three months before you get put on Medicaid, you can get reimbursed for. So I was like, I want to get my thousands of dollars back. So I um, went to Brooklyn, Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, and uh, had to go to the office. I dressed down, no makeup, no jewelry, no nothing. Is that is that a two magazine location? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. I think, hard, I think it is, right? You know? Maybe so three. Nice maybe maybe yeah, a three. Maybe a three magazine so location. I go there, and I I got jerked around a lot. You know, different people telling me different things. Well, I finally at one point they send me up to see this woman. Her name was Miss Garcia. I'll never forget her. And she looked through the paperwork I had, 
And she said to me, and I'll never forget it. She said, I'm going to tell you, you are entitled to get your money back. Just don't ever give up. Just don't ever give up. And I didn't. It took me 18 months. I had to have a hearing. They denied it. I wanted a second hearing. I finally got all but $800 back of my money I laid back. I laid out for that initial one. So now he's into all these other rehabs. You know, Loretta, could you, Loretta, could you just hold it? We got to go to a quick break sure. and we'll come back. I know, I know you got this story down. We'll, we'll just keep, keep <laughs> yeah, that. Keep I, that I know you know it pretty well. So keep that thought. And okay. Phil, uh, do your best advertising voice. <laughs> Carol Waters is a realtor in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So if you have need to have uh, a real estate interest in South Carolina, in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Carol Waters and her husband, Rob Mann, who's a former member of the NYPD and the FDNY, the Fire Department in New York, they're both million dollar sales people in the real estate industry. You can reach Carol at 914 261 6681. That's a cell number, 914 261 6681. Or email her at carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. That's carolwaterssellsmb at gmail.com. If you're looking to relocate, she's the person to, to get a hold of. Joe Murray, attorney at law. He's been a, a big supporter of Police Off the Cuff. He's been on the show numerous times. Uh, Joe gives you both sides of the fence. He's a former NYPD police officer with over 15 years experience, and he's a lawyer that knows both sides of the fence. Joe could be reached on his cell, 646-838-1702. That's 646-838-1702. Or he could be emailed at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe at jmurray-law.com. Folks, Michael O'Keefe is a retired first grade detective, and he is the author of three novels, Shot to Pieces, A Reckoning in Brooklyn, and Burnt to a Crisp. You can order his books on Amazon.com or his website, MichaelO'KeefeAuthor.com. I've read all three of these books. They're fantastic. Shot to Pieces is somewhat autobiographical based on the 1992 shooting in Washington, which led to the Washington Heights riots where Michael got in a hand-to-hand combat with a drug dealer named Kiko Garcia. Luckily, Mike came out on top. He walked out alive and Kiko Garcia uh, wound up uh, dead. And that's what that book is about. So if you want to read some great, three great police books, Shot to Pieces, A Reckoning in Brooklyn, and Burnt to a Crisp, uh, Amazon.com or MichaelO'KeefeAuthor.com. Folks, this is PoliceCoffee.com. It's an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends. Uh, it's made uh, to provide you with the freshest coffee av available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And our specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Our coffee is some of the best you'll find, but also helps serve an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of our profits go goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. To order coffee and related products from policecoffee.com, go to the website. There are over seven types of coffee to choose from. 50% of the profits go to officers' families in need. For a 10% discount, use code OTC10, that's off the cuff 10. So policecoffee.com is the website and OTC10, you can get a 10% discount. It's a great product and you're really helping other, other members of the service. 
Sorry, Loretta, we had to go to those commercials to pay I the bills. <laughs> so, um, so to pick up where I was, so, so thereafter, you know, is two years of in and out of rehabs uh, all over the place. I used to go to all the family visits, you know, on the weekends and things like that. And um, it was just extremely disheartening. And, you know, among all of this um, was the residual effect to, to Mike, what Mike says it, to everybody else in the family. I have a daughter as well. And um, she and him, they were not even talking. Um, she, she just really disliked him immensely at that point. And she was also very angry at me um, for, you know, trying to help him basically or, or dealing with the whole situation. And she would get really upset at me because she felt that um, he was ruining my life as well. Yeah. So it was tough. It was tough to go to work and be dealing with this. And obviously um, nobody knew. Um, my family knew and that was it. Um, you know, if my friends knew it wasn't for me. So I would go to all these rehabs with him. And um, ultimately, he was in a rehab out in the Hamptons. And um, there was a place upstate in Saranac Lake called St. Joe's. Very difficult to get in. Because another thing that I found out is a lot of these beds are reserved for people who've been arrested. So, you know, you can get somebody who's real legit, who really wants to go in and get clean, but they can't get a bed because they're giving them to those who are arrested first. It's kind of a crazy thing, but that's it's a how beautiful it country. It's a beautiful country we have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, some of the people that I met, uh, real decent people, um, whose kids were younger, you know, in their early 20s or teens who had insurance, they had a real rough time because sometimes their insurance would only allow a week, which is a joke, um, or, or sometimes 30 days. And, and that also is really not sufficient. So St. Joe's was a three-month program. And he was in this place, it was in December. He was getting out like December 31st, like right at the end of the year. And I used to call this place St. Joe's. They never had beds. Well, sure enough, I called and they had a bed that was coming available. And um, I made arrangements and I spoke to him. I said, you're going up to the St. Joe's. This way you're going to have a four-month stretch. So I had to drive from where I was on Long Island out to the Hamptons, pick him up, and they gave me a certain amount of time to get up to Saranac Lake, which I think you know upstate, Billy. It's practically up by the Canadian border. Yeah, it's pretty damn far. And it's in February. And by the time I got up there, it was night. It had to be seriously like 20 below zero up there. So I walked them in the place and they signed them in and they said, you have to leave. And I was like, I, I, I've just been in a car for like the last, you know, 10 hours. And um, I had to leave right away. So he was up there. They had a really good, the best family program. It was a three-day program. Um, I went to that. And so he got through about two and a half months and he wanted to leave. He, he fell fine. And, you know, I was battling with him. Yeah, stay in, stay in, stay in. Well, he wound up leaving and there was nothing I could do. Um, they, they let him go. So he came out and um, I told him, you know, you're not living here anymore. Um, you know, figure it out. You, you, you're not living here anymore. So he went and he lived in a homeless shelter in Freeport. Wow. And um, yeah, that's where he lived. And he now, got Loretta, can I just interrupt you for a second? And I, I we, we're going to probably 
only have an hour, so I, I know mm -hmm. uh, your story, you, you could tell the story much longer. But I want to say that you learned through all of your, I think you went to Al-Anon or one of those groups or a Narcotics yeah. Anonymous that you were enabling him and you learned, oh, you learned not to enable him. And that's probably why it, it became successful in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when, when he, you know, went to Freeport, you know, and he came out, but during that I, I found Naranon and I started going, I found a couple kind of where I lived. I went to the farthest one away cause I didn't want anybody to know who I was and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the first day, time I was there, I pretty much just kind of like sat there, you know, just kind of taking it all in. And I realized like everybody handles this differently. There were people in there who kicked their kids right out. There were other people who were never kicking their kids out. They were going to let them stay as long as possible to try and get straight. But it was really, I had to get myself um, healed in many ways. Um, realize that I was an enabler. Um, and I had to deal with that whole issue. And I had to deal with learning really to live my life for me and not for him and his addiction anymore. And, um, it takes a, it takes a long time to do that. Um, you know, because you're a parent and you know, it's hard to, um, you know, push them away like that. But I, my, always, you know, let go and let God. And, um, and that's what I did. And, and in the end, one of the things my son told me was when I got better, when I pushed him away to deal with his addiction, he got better. He got better. Yeah. It's amazing. But you'll hear people say that when I no longer enabled him, when I no longer, you know, helped him along or paid for things or, and all that kind of stuff, most people do. Is when he got better. So you know, Loretta, it's, it's as a parent, we all know, and Phil's listening, and we're all listening to this. Is that it's so hard to let your kids fail, but that you have to mm -hmm. let them. You know, it's the old thing, even with alcoholics, they have to hit bottom before they can get right. better, before they can get sober. You know. You yeah, know, Bill, I want to make a couple of points. Um, I had a relative that was severely uh, addicted to narcotics over many, many years, and. Um, we found through one of the counselors that was a, a counselor who had over 30 years in the business about what you guys were talking about, cutting the safety net. The safety net is uh, you're an enabler. If you give them five dollars or you give them a sandwich when they're supposed to be hitting rock bottom, what everybody's rock bottom is different the way they explained it. Um, and, uh, you know, you got to cut the safety net. You can't you cannot help them with clean clothes or this and that. And that's really, really tough to do with a loved one. Now, mm -hmm. I think both of you guys share something. You have something in common. You had someone who was very close to you, a loved one that was addicted. And I think probably from what I'm seeing, and I'm, I'm, I'm not a, an expert at this, but I do know a little bit about it because of, a, like I said, a family member, that the success rate is very, very low. I think it's like 5% uh, where people actually come out of it and don't uh, you know, relapse, but the, the, it sounds like the key is, is that you let them hit rock bottom. And when they saw there was nowhere else to go, but up, that's what they did, I guess. And, um, 
you know, I mean, when you think about it, it's 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 just terrible. I know that a lot of times with the opioid addictions, they want to point fingers at Big Pharma, like Mike said. But there's something a little bit more personal to me. These doctors that'll write prescriptions knowing what they're doing for, for a $200 office visit, and they're giving somebody a prescription for opioid, uh, you know, uh, oxycotton or whatever. Look, those are the real low lives in, in the whole thing, and. I think the difference between what Bill was talking about with the, the 70s heroin, 70s and 80s, the heroin, the overdoses, all of that, those were people who were playing. They were in the game. A lot of the people who got introduced to these opioids were, was, so to speak, did it by accident. They went to a doctor, they went to a hospital, yeah. a car accident, a knee injury, whatever it was, yeah. and now they're hooked on painkillers. So it's, it's a little different, but I think that the numbers are, are quite striking now, like Mike was saying, because- it's it started like that and it just spread like wildfire and they were giving these pills to everyone and uh, well it was shocking to me when i used to go to these different rehabs all over the place you know i would i was expecting to go in and see like all well, like you know teenagers 20 year olds or whatever oh no i everyone mean, firemen nurses um journalists you y- you name it you know people in their 70s 60s women housewives the gamut, all ethnicities, you name it, it was, it was everywhere. It was so shocking to me. Um, and like all of you, I know so many people on the job, off the job, who have had this issue, who have lost their loved ones uh, to this issue. Um, for me now, my son is uh, clean for almost, uh, in recovery for uh, almost seven years now. Um uh-huh. For, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, 10 years ago, I, I was really planning, figuring I'd be burying him. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Seriously. But, um, you know, when he first started recovery, about a year into recovery, he went out to California where my daughter lived and he worked in a, um, a, a transitional living house for men. And it was, um, right on Venice beach actually. And he, um, you know, Loretta, I, I have a, a lifetime membership to Muscle Beach. Do you? Well, when you looked out, the, the, uh, <laughs> just because I'm so shredded, the sign was right there, Muscle Beach. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so he worked there for like two years and you know, you know, kind of gave back and helped out, and um, that's where I kind of got involved. Uh, parents would bring their kids there. A lot of famous people's kids went, went through there. Um, but my, you know, the parents would always be like, you know, I don't know what to do. And so he'd say, mom, can I give out your phone number? You know, and I'd let him, you know, they call my cell phone. I get like this lady from, you know, Kentucky, you know, would be like, you know, nobody in, in my town has this problem. I'm like, oh yeah, you just don't know about it. Exactly. Um, and, you know, just try and help them on. And, and I really kind of spread the word about Naranon. Um, yeah. You know, it it took me a long time to take that step to do it, but it was probably the most important thing I did for myself and subsequently for him. Um, but it's uh, it's it's a it's a hard road, and uh, I'm glad I am where I am now. Uh, we're very close. Um, he's told me a lot about his journey. I don't know everything. I, I said this before. I don't think I want to know everything. Right. Um, you know you have your son alive and clean, and that's the most important thing. 
Dr. Stephen yeah. Washkel, thank you so much for that $50 super chat. You're, you're a real hero in this world, uh, everything yeah. you do. And we know, I mean, look, uh, even Mike, he, he is your name and everyone uh, knows what type of man you are. And we all appreciate you. And uh, every time someone wants to do a show on suicide or addiction, I always give Dr. Washkel a call and he never turns me down. He's the best. Coming on the show. He's unbelievable. You know, Loretta, one of the things, and when you said, I mean, you, the last time you were on the show, that your son was homeless in a shelter in, in Freeport. Yeah. And I could feel it. I was like, I grew up yeah. on Long Island, and I'm like, yeah. oh, my God. Well, you know a what? homeless shelter. And you're right, but he had to hit bottom before he could get better. Yeah. And he had just come out of rehab, so he was clean at that point. But that's where he went to live. He got himself a job where he could get to um, that was nearby. And he finally, he said to me, he said, uh, you know, mom, I, I realize he's like, I, I wasn't raised this way. And he has been clean, you know, ever since. And um, Loretta, when you say clean, is that clean of everything? No alcohol? No, no. Nope. He, he doesn't drink alcohol. He doesn't smoke cigarettes and nothing. I think you got a hundred percent clean. You can't. Really that was one know, of the things. Recovery that is a lifelong process, and um, so I'm never, you know, too quick to say, you know, hip hip hooray, um, because you just never know. But um, he feels really good about himself. I feel really good about him. Uh, we stay in touch a lot. I see him as often as I can, and um, it's just. Uh, it's just a hard road. And, you know, for the, anybody whose families are going through this, um, it's, you know, it, it's, you know, I just, I just prayed all the time. And I'm uh, sure, it, I'm sure it puts years uh, on your life too. It's just a, uh, a horrible it's thing. It's unbelievable. You know? When you think about it, if you, if you compare it, it's like, it's like the cat that drags the mouse into the house. I woke up <laughs> every day really wondering where he was. I didn't know where he was living, you know, through a lot of this. I woke up every day wondering if he was laying dead somewhere for days. Yeah. At night, the last thing I thought of is like, where is he? You know, and that went on for a really, really long time. So, um, but well, it, seems know, like, it seems like you came out of it pretty well, too. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm sure yeah. it took its toll on you, but, you know, it took its toll on everyone in my family. Yep. Everyone. Everyone. Um, it, it just does. It, it affects everybody. And uh, that, that was one of the things that I learned from this counselor that I was talking about, that uh, a person goes in for heroin, cocaine, whatever addiction. And when they come out of rehab, not even a sip of wine. And this family member that I was talking about, um, I can remember years back, maybe 10 years ago, uh, him around the holidays, I think it was Thanksgiving, came out of rehab. And his mother handed him a glass of wine. So that's ah, just mm. a glass of wine. And I knew that, you know, this was going to be another, you know, it would just be another continuation of the problem. Yeah. But, uh, and another another thing is people come out of rehab and, you know, their friends want to see them and say, hey, you look great and all this. But then they don't respect their sobriety. You know, yeah. they'll be sitting in someone's backyard. They start cracking open beers or somebody lights up a joint or whatever. Right. And, you know, it's it's just no good. You gotta find totally new friends. You can't hang yeah. out with it's, old friends. Wait, people, places, and things. Yeah, right? yeah. So, um, so if you're a recovering addict, can you be in the presence of someone who's drinking or smoking a joint, or no? Me Generally, personally, I, I no, would I say, I would say no. Definitely not early on. Um, I mean, 
you know, I even know that I don't, you know, not that I'm a big drinker, I'm a social drinker, but if I go out to dinner with him, I don't ever order a drink. It's a very good point. I just very don't good. do that. Um, you, you know, know someone, someone in the chat said, um, why should they respect someone else's sobriety? It's not their problem. You're right. It's not their problem. But, but if you problem. love that person, if you, you want to help them. them. Yeah. 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 You want to help them stay sober, not make it harder for them. You know? Yeah, exactly right. Because the friends or the family, they don't know what's going on in the mind and, and all that kind of stuff and, and what this person's dealing with and what a struggle it's been to get where they are already. One of the things uh, I, I learned also is heroin is one of the easiest drugs um, to uh, become non-addicted to because it's all psychological. Mm. Where certain other drugs or alcohol, for example. I think cocaine is much more difficult to. Uh, physical. Yeah, yeah, they say heroin is, is uh, all psychological. One, it hijacks the brain. Yeah, once it gets out of your system, after after you detox for a few days, it's all psychological, and that's where the support uh, is really needed um, for those going through this. I have Folks, a quick question. I have a quick question, Bill, for both Mike okay. and Floretta. If there's a short two or three sentence words of advice for people that are listening or someone that knows a person who's addicted like this, what quick advice could you give? Because I know we're we're almost to the hour. Just a quick uh, advice. Loretta, maybe you want to go first? I would say try to address it as quickly as possible. Uh, a lot of times parents or, or uh, loved ones uh, are in denial. And I say the quicker you start to address the problem, uh, the better. Only they can overcome the addiction. You cannot do it for them. So don't try. Don't try Good to point. beat yourself up. They have to do it themselves. And then give them the support and the love that they need, you know, when they're out, you know, respect their sobriety. Uh, you know, I, I do support my son now. And, um, you know, just regain that relationship, that family relationship you had. I'm happy to say that my daughter, my son and I are all extremely close now. Yeah. It was a very tough time where we weren't. And um, that's, that's really important as well. And uh, I, I'd say never give up. Never give up and, um, you know, pray to God. That's what I did. A lot of it. Yeah. Mike, same question. <laughs> All right. So, again, it's going to be support. Don't punish. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of conflicting thoughts about this because if I never took my daughter away from my wife, would that have been her bottom? I mean, she did have money she could have drained to continue the use, but she wasn't a mother for a couple months of her life. Um, look, when people demand uh, Matt, universal mat, universal medical assistant treatment, or people who are demanding that certain governors sign into legislation safe consumption sites, it's because parents who, who grieve the loss of their children realize they're not alone, and they don't want other parents to go through this. The drugs are never going away, and the drugs are never going to get weaker. So there really is a, a larger echo here that people have to understand that they're just going to get stronger. But look, you're not alone. This is why I reveal so much of the intimate part of my life because I, 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 I meet too many people to tell them that you're not alone. And if you're, if you're loving individual who's using, you're broken. You're just as broken as them. Uh, support, don't punish. 
And, uh, you know, hopefully by doing more events and talking about it, you'll understand that it's everywhere. And people have these secrets that they, they can't admit. Parents should always treat it as a disease and tell them, listen, we love you. It's a disease. It's not a character flaw. Mike, you know something? I just want to thank you, Mike Baglioni, for telling this very tough story to tell, especially when you're still on the police department, because I know, you know, something I always tried to keep my life totally separate from the police department. I didn't want anyone knowing my business at right. all, you know? Mm -hmm. When people know your business, it just makes it that much more difficult. Loretta, you're a gem. I really, uh, your story is amazing. And the fact that you tell it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Loretta, I want you to look this up and for everyone else. It's called Per Aspera Ad Astra. It's Latin for through difficulty to the stars. Okay? You and I made it, and you and I now have voices that we could tell other people. And as for anyone else on the show, there's so many brokenhearted people, but if you get through it, there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. 100%. And, you know, something, again, our, our people, we didn't cover that story of uh, – some are wells tonight and some people may be a little bit disappointed, but I think we have to give back to our community too and do shows that are more almost like a public service. And that's what I think this show is because you're really going to help a lot of people through your journey. Folks, if you're not subscribed to police off the cuff, please hit the subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up, ring the bell. We also have a Patreon. I'm not going to go through the whole spiel tonight, but, um, this was a great show, and I, I really uh, I really am sincere when I want to thank Mike Balioni and Loretta Kennedy. Their stories are somewhat similar, even though different, and their journey is the important thing. And the hey, journey Billy, was, yes. can, I, can I just say, if um, anybody in your audience or not watching who knows about this podcast, if they want help or someone to talk to or, or some guidance, you can always, re, you know, reach out to me. I'm sure Mike would do the same thing. And it's kind of more than just a podcast. You know, I'm more than happy to speak to anybody to help them and guide them. L Loretta, Mike. I think the, the safest way is just for me to give your email and Mike also, I could give your email out. I'm not going to give your phone number out. All right? Yeah. Or you can email me and, and I can and, reach and, out and, and whatever you want to do, which might Yeah, be I know how to do that. That was the police once. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Phil Grimaldi, I'm going to, and Duty Ron. That's right. Duty Ron, thank you for that $10 super chat. And Phil Grimaldi, I can't let you, the show end without giving you the last word. Well, I just want to say thank you uh, to these two people. I got to tip my hat to both of you. God bless you and your family. I, I really uh, was so happy to be part of this. And I think you made some great points. And and a lot of times people think, you know, go to rehab 30 days and you're cured. No, it doesn't work that way. It sounds like it's a long haul. But there is light at the end of the, end of the tunnel. You guys showed it. There's there's uh, a proof of, of recovery. And uh, God bless you both and God bless your families. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Blondie, Blondie thank you. 1025, thank you for the 499 Super Chat. And for Police Off the Cuff, I'm Bill Cannon and with Phil Grimaldi. And for Mike Balioni and Loretta Kennedy, good night, everyone. And thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Bye-bye.